Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be examining the life and work of Charles Richet, a Nobel laureate scientist who is one of the pioneers in the field of psychical research, the discipline that really preceded modern scientific parapsychology. My guest is Dr. Carlos Alvarado, who is the former president of the Parapsychological Association. He is probably the foremost living expert today on the history of psychical research, and he is the author of a newly published book called Charles Richet, a Nobel Prize-winning scientist's exploration of psychic phenomena. Once again, this is an internet interview, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Carlos. It's good to be with you once again. It's good to be here. So, we're going to talk about Charles Richet. Am I pronouncing his name correctly? Is it Richet? Yeah. And uh, a very eminent French scientists. I think uh, many uh, people in the English-speaking world are less familiar with his work because mostly he wrote in French, I understand. Yes, that's true. Most of his publications, I will say more than 80%, are still not translated. They, they are books in French or articles in medical and psychical research journals. Uh, he was born in the middle of the 19th century, and if I recall correctly, he died in 1935, I think. Yes, yeah, he lived from 1850 to 1935. He had a long, um, very productive life. And, and I suppose the, the, one of the most interesting biographical features is that uh, he won the Nobel Prize. Yes, that's true. He he was a physiologist and he was always doing work in some physiological topic. And in 1913, he he was awarded a Nobel Prize for his work on anaphylaxis. That has had to do with the immune system, and he was looking for ways to make people immune different diseases and conditions and so forth. So, obviously, uh, he was widely acknowledged for his conventional scientific work. That is true. He, he was, uh, even at the time where he got the prize in 1913, uh, it was kind of in the middle of his career. That, of course, put him up in terms of prestige much more, but before, from even from the 1880s, I would say, he was very well known, in, in especially in France, in the field of physiology. He had many, many publications, and he was widely respected. And, and I suppose another interesting biographical feature is that he came from a very well-to-do family. He, he was affluent. He had inherited wealth. Yeah, that's true. On both sides of the family, from his father's side, from his mother's side, 
they they came from maybe what we will call today very high class people with plenty of money, plenty of social prestige, and that actually helped him a lot. First of all, he was very talented on his own. There is no question about it. But his social and high scientific connections also helped him develop his career and uh, develop his interest in psychic phenomena. You, you know, one of the facts that has always stuck out with me is is that he owned a private island, and uh, on one occasion he used that island for uh, a lengthy series of uh, seances. Yeah, those were seances with the Italian medium, Eusapia Palladino. Uh, he, he went there with some of his uh, colleagues. Uh, Oliver Lodge was there, for example, uh, from England, Juliano Horovic from Poland, and some other people. And uh, they had seances in very well-controlled environment. You know, it was a room that it was only himself and a, a few people. And he became really convinced that there were physical phenomena happening with this medium. Uh, you said Eusapia. I, I've heard her pronounce Eusapia. Uh, you probably know the correct pronunciation better than I do. But uh, the Italian uh, medium, who who was very controversial, and as I recall, we discussed her in, in our previous discussion of the astronomer Camille Flammarion also researched her. That's true. The, this medium had uh, seances with every eminent researcher, in, in Europe, but she became really, really well known and they were always going to her or most of the time they will bring her, you know, to Paris, to other parts of Italy to have uh, seances with her. And uh, Richet was one of uh, Eusapia's uh, favorite persons. You know, she, she will talk about him with great respect and and really was very eager to please him in terms of producing phenomena and so forth. You know, it's interesting because he worked extensively with uh, Eusapia, Palladino, and, and other mediums, but uh, unlike Flammarion, who we talked about in our previous discussion, he w did not consider himself a spiritualist and uh Although he was, wasn't was totally closed-minded, he considered it a, a possibility, I suppose, but he was really looking for um, scientific explanations, not metaphysical or spiritual explanations. True. I mean, when he started, he was really a complete materialist. You know, he believed only in forces that could be measured, what could be quantified, because he was very much into the use of quantification. And uh, certainly being in psychical research in, in the years where he was active, he, he dealt with mediums that produced phenomena, and the claim was that those phenomena came from spirits of the dead. He, most of his uh, writings is very skeptical of that idea. But on occasion, he, he wrote almost as a personal confession that there were some phenomena such as deathbed visions. That was one case, one example, and that impressed him greatly in terms of the survival hypothesis. And uh, there has been a long controversy, you know, there are many people always claiming that by the end of his life, 
he became convinced of survival. And I have looked into that and all these sources that I, that I have been able to find, including some in other languages other than English, in, in French or in Italian, I, I really don't find evidence to be completely sure of that. But there is no question that by the end of his, li of his life, he became less materialistic in his outlook. He, he was really getting there to accept that psychic phenomena had a, a general existential uh, meaning that went beyond just blind forces, you know, things just moving around with no intelligence behind them. He never said, I believe in, in the spirit survival, but in private correspondence with people such as Oliver Lodge, a uh, physicist from England that was very much into survival, and another person from Italy called Ernesto Bozzano, who was a student of psychic phenomena that was an ardent survivalist. In fact, he, he and Richer fought a lot during the 1920s and 1930s in, in writing in a friendly way, but, but sometimes the argument will get really heated. And he wrote both of them to say that that he had changed and had approached their views. And their views were openly spiritualistic. You know, the spirits of the dead survive and cause the phenomena. So that, that's as close as we can say that maybe he came uh, a believer in survival, but in writing, he, he never really admitted that. And I think it was his background as a, as a physiologist, and he, he said so himself. He was so used to see physiology rule the workings of the mind, of the human body, that it was hard for him to conceptualize that a spirit could go out of the body and survive bodily death. And he had to struggle through all his life with that, uh, that problem. Well, it's interesting. I gather he was close friends with Oliver Lodge. And uh, Oliver Lodge, as I recall, was uh, started his career out as a staunch materialist also uh, in physics. Uh, he, he was considered, along with Marconi, an inventor of the radio. But uh, he converted after his son was killed in the First World War, and he began to receive mediumistic communications. Yes, uh, Lodge is, is one of many that were deeply affected by their studies of psychic phenomena. They saw so many mediums and also conducted experiments in telepathy and in other areas of the field and eventually, you know, came to the conclusion that, that things could not be explained except by admitting that there was a human spirit that was behind all these phenomena. And uh, in that sense, he and Richer were kind of uh, different. And again, they, they also had all kinds of dialogues in writing. It's fascinating to read these things, especially in, in the 1920s, you know, how their assumptions were kind of so different. But it's not so different from what is happening today. You know, we have people in, in parapsychology today that, that are very materialistic. Others are very open to the spirit, uh, to discarnate spirit action. And uh, it's, it's a dialogue that has not changed really that much since the old days. Some people bring new arguments to it, but in, in general, it's really two different viewpoints about what is possible and what is not.
I gather that one of the strong arguments Riche made is that we really have to be empiricists. We have to gather data and look at the evidence and start there and eventually we'll perhaps come up with some theories. But he, he saw the data as more important, I think, than the theories. That's true. Many of his writings will emphasize just that, that uh, he, he will say things like, at this point, you know, we need to focus on the facts of doing more experiments or getting better and better evidence for the existence of, of telekinesis and materialization, telepathy, whatever was the phenomena, and leave the explanations till one day when we will be better prepared to address them. You know, that doesn't mean that he did not have some theoretical ideas uh, of his own. You know, like he used to talk about the sixth sense, we will call today, you know, ESP. And uh, and he used to present a, a very vague idea of what he called the action of vibrations. He was trying to find like a physical model, almost like a radio type type transmission to explain it. But his ideas were always very vague, never never too too specific. He always stayed with you know more with the facts. And I gather he acknowledged that we have these facts and we really cannot adequately explain them. Yeah, he was also very very clear about that, that the phenomena were real and he will make a list of all the things he, he thought were real, not only things like telepathy, which most psychical researchers accepted at the time, but even more controversial things like materialization phenomena. You know, he became involved in several studies of materialization mediums. And in, in fact, he was involved in a really big controversy where he was defending the existence of, of full body materializations, even with clothing and long beards and things that when you see the photographs of the time, you know, it's hard not to be incredulous. But he stuck to his ideas and he defended his belief, saying that he was sure of his observations. He was very careful at the time. That happened around 1905. That's at least when, when he was published. I gather also that he, if he didn't invent the term ectoplasm, he popularized it. Yes, he's, he's often credited with that. But again, I have, ne I have never found a, a source that will give me, you know, assurance that he was the one that coined the term. Certainly the term existed before from the biological sciences used in, in a different way. But, but I think you are right that he's, he popularized it, he wrote uh, about it, and other people started picking it up, and, and so you know, now he's identified with the term. Yeah. So, so let's go into some of his observations uh, regarding ectoplasm. He observed ectoplasm with many uh, mediums. Uh, one, the most controversial one that, that I was referring to is with the medium Martha Barrow, which later became known as Eva C. in the 1920s or so. But he went to Algiers to study her inside a, a family circle. And uh, there, there were full body materializations that were found that uh, he saw clearly. But there were, he also described in one of his books uh, what, what he himself would have said was amorphous ectoplasm. 
By that I mean it was not just a figure, but it was like a substance that came from the medium and move around. And that in the book, there are diagrams of, of the medium kind of sitting straight and holding in her hands like a long uh, piece of something that it looked very amorphous. And when he goes on to describe that, it's, it's, in my view, one of the most amazing descriptions of ectoplasm in the history of psychical research. Because he says that that thing started moving, it fell to the ground, it started moving like an animal, crawling, it looked like a giant snail, even with, with a head similar to, to, to a snail. And, uh, and he says and that on that occasion, he was very sure of the phenomena because he was alone in the room with a lady friend and the medium and no one else. And he was there was light enough, you know, he could really see what was happening. And uh, he was completely convinced, you know, he says, unless I'm hallucinating, and this other lady also was hallucinating, this thing was completely real. So that, that's one example uh, of, the, of the phenomena he observed. Later on, he, he sat with other mediums, Franek Kloski from Poland, that produced also other... Uh, ectoplasm, you know, things uh, like like drapery or or a, a fabric type tissue that will appear a, around the medium and uh, all body formations, and so you know he had wide experience uh, with that phenomenon. Also with Paladino, early early on in the early 1890s, he he sat with her and he was not completely convinced the first time. That, that he sat with her, but his report, he talks about seeing hands, feeling the, the hands that appear in the sands room and move around, and, and, and he says, this is something that needs to be studied. We have to take this seriously, and he, he could not control it as well as he would have liked to at that time, but he had the opportunity with the same medium with Paladino to to observe her a few years later, and then he acquired complete conviction that that the phenomena, you know, were real. Up to, up, up to the point that that he, he he said in one of his writings that he would tell to the other sitters, as saying, "Well, here is another ectoplasm again. Here it is," and they were kind of taking it lightly, while at the same time understanding that it was a real serious thing. You know, this had implications about mind and matter that were not understood then nor, nor even now, I will say. It would be natural that uh, he would face very harsh criticism uh, for reports like this. Although he was very eminent, as, as, as you know, we mentioned before, he, he, was, he was strongly criticized throughout his career. In the, in the first seances that I told the ones that were held in Algiers, that there are photographs, you know, of this big phantom with, with kind of an Arab type thing, you know, on his, on his head and long beard. And he says, look, this is incredible. This is, I know how bad this looks, but I saw it. It was real. And I don't think, you know, I, it can be explained. Plenty of people uh, basically were saying, oh, the poor Richard, you know, he's, he's losing it. He used to be 
a serious scientist and all that. That shows, you know, that in the in this field of psychic phenomena, when you're dealing with certain phenomena that are very controversial, like materializations, uh, it doesn't matter how eminent you are scientifically or all that. The scientific community goes only so far and cannot accept certain things. And instead of dealing with the claims, you know, like coming and having seances and trying to do that, it's, it's easier to psychologize the person and and bring explanations about their, that they had too much belief or that they were losing their mind. Or The thing is that they, this is the same Richard that at the same time was doing physiology, was getting prizes, was, was publishing in the best journals in France. So, you know, you, you will have to postulate that in psychic research, he was a moron. And in science, he was a brilliant guy. And actually, some, some people, that's exactly what they did. In, in their psychological analysis, I say they here he is a brilliant man, and here he loses it, and we cannot follow him to into this area. As I recall, on the other hand, he was sometimes very critical of uh, mediums. I know he worked with Mrs. Piper, the famous Boston medium who, who had worked extensively with William James, and, and he was rather unimpressed uh, with her abilities. Yes, in terms of his personal experience, he he really was not that impressed. He didn't get a lot of good results. But that happened to a lot of other people, you know. In, it happened that in the sense that they had with her, that was not a good sense. I think in other things that he wrote about her when he was reviewing the evidence in general, he would accept the writings of, of people like Richard Hudson or James Hislop, which were other researchers that had a lot of seances with Mrs. Piper and were completely convinced that she was the the real thing. So he Brichet accepted that intellectually, but in terms of personal experience, that was that was not the best experience he, he had. You know. Uh, and one of the other uh, studies in which he was engaged, which uh, I found very fascinating, and I think. Uh, still is of, of great importance is the idea of, um, I would call it telepathic hypnotic induction. I think he might have used a, a different phrase for it at, at the time. Yes, he was involved in that. In, that's a phenomenon that comes from the early mesmeric tradition. You, you find it very early in the 19th century. Well, in, when Richer was involved, we are talking about kind of around 1885, 1886. Around those years, people became interested in France in that particular phenomenon, following presentations by the famous Pierre Janet, which later, at that time, he was starting his career as a, as a young academic, and later became uh, France's uh, premier uh, psychopathologist, you know, he was a student of hysteria and stuff like that, but he started his career doing uh, studies of telepathic hypnosis, inducing, especially with this particular uh, woman that was a, a peasant in the area and was very open to being researched by Janet. And Richer was involved in that investigation as well and later had access to this person and was able to do to conduct experiments uh, with her. He brought her to Paris, 
and uh, and tried to do telepathic hypnosis with her, sometimes with good results. But he also did all sorts of studies like card guessing. He Richer was was big into using cards in in the nineteenth century. He was a pioneer in that. In fact, I understand he's really the first person to apply probability theory and statistics to the analysis of these tests. That's true. That, that was one of his early accomplishments. You know, he published that in 1884 before anyone else in psychical research had tried to quantify these things in any way. And... Uh, and created a tradition that slowly developed into well, what we have today, that, that all experiments now in parapsychology are analyzed using statistical method. And when he started, that was not widely done, not in psychology either. There were other people in psychology that have done some things quantifying it, you know, trying to determine what's the probability of, of, of finding these things, if the, can chance just coincidence account for this particular phenomenon. Very few people were dealing with that, and, and he published it in, in, a, in a mainstream uh, journal. It was a, a philosophy journal, but in those days, philosophy journals used to publish many things related to psychology and the social sciences in general. It was not only pure philosophy. So there he publishes it, and in that same journal, there are later accounts of this telepathic hypnosis that other people start investigating and uh, it became kind of a small specialty in research in those days in inducing trance at a distance. Now, usually what they will do, they will have a person separated and not expecting any action in that particular day to avoid suggestion. And at a particular time, they will will that person to fall asleep. And sure enough, in most cases, not always, but in most cases, uh, the, an observer that was with, with the person on the other side will say, yeah, at 3.15, she all of a sudden stopped talking, closed her eyes, and <laughs> I didn't know what happened. And later they found out that that was the exact time where people were doing it. And Richet was very much into that. And he admitted the difficulty in doing science with the phenomenon, but he was completely convinced that it was a real thing. This is a phenomenon that got picked up uh, a few years later uh, in the Soviet Union by Vasiliev. Yeah, yeah, that is true. And, and it's a, a phenomenon that many of us wish, you know, there was more research even on, up to date. Uh, I think if, if we could follow some of the old Vasiliev's and, and previous researchers' reports, it's something that, that I think we could develop. Uh, I think we have to start with, with really highly gifted uh, persons in an experiment, not only in terms of telepathy, but people that are very susceptible to hypnosis, that show very high hypnotic susceptibility. The, the person that that Richet was using, the same patients of Pierre Janet was a woman called Leonie Le Boulanger. And she was very well known to be completely open to hypnotic suggestion. They, they could induce all kinds of phenomena in her. They could uh, induce changes in personality. 
she will do things automatic writing and do all kinds of things where she was hypnotized that she will not remember later different personalities appear that some of which were aware of each other but not all of them would know the other the but the point is that she was highly susceptible not only in, in telepathy but also her hypnotic potential was extremely high and i think that's that's the type of person that that needs to be explored further you know for these these kind of studies yet on the other hand i i think a lot of people are rather paranoid about the possibilities here there's all this concern the government is trying to get into my head and uh and, and what did the uh, russians and the soviet union it, it seemed that they thought there might be military applications for that ability yeah yeah, no, that that is true. I I don't think Rishi conceptualized it like that, but certainly that's that's something that that could hinder, you know, some some research if people are afraid of of some type of unwanted influence. And uh, the thing is, that the phenomena has been detected many times, but it doesn't seem to be so, you know, so. How could I always say it's, it's not so easy to use it? Practical applications like military ones, you know, like you know, wiping the mind of someone at a distance for espionage purposes, or or just to commit murder for with a sp one spy to another. All the type of things that we see a lot developing in science fiction. In in reality, also there is a phenomenon there. I think. It has been proved to be very difficult to control. And Richet was very clear about that. You know, he, he will say, I have found this. I think it's real, but I do not know why, why or how it works. And that's what I'm trying to find. I know that uh, one parapsychologist, George Hansen, has written a book about the trickster archetype in parapsychology, and he suggests that, yes, these phenomena are very real, but uh, we'll never be able to apply them or control them systematically. They always seem to elude a, a sort of mechanistic application. I, I don't know what, what to say really about it. On one hand, uh, I tend to think that that's a possibility. But on the other hand, there is also the issue that we still know very little about this, this phenomenon. Even with all the years of investigation, you know, we, there are so many things about this, this uh, ESP phenomena that if we knew much more, maybe it would be possible to use them in a more practical way if that's if, if that can be done i think we're still a little far from from the present time i have certainly heard from multiple people and i imagine you and probably every other parapsychologist hears occasionally from people who who believe that somebody is trying to control them using uh, telepathic suggestions like that yeah yeah, that is true. That's a kind of, kind of a, a common a common claim. Unfortunately, you know, some some of that is associated with certain mental illness or, or psychological problems. We don't know if in other occasions there is there is really some some ESP phenomena going on. It's it's very hard to say. And when you when someone approaches you with that, it is very hard to get the proper information to evaluate it because. 
on top of the account, you are dealing with a person that is suffering, that has a lot of psychological pain. I mean, I have seen people like that, and and it's, it's, it's hard just to be cold and analytic without trying to help the person and make them feel better. So you're dealing with a lot of complex things at the same time. As I recall, there have also been various chess masters in, in international tournaments who have thought that uh, some, uh, per, in particular the Russians, are trying to manipulate their mind. Yeah, no, that's, that's true. That, that, has been, that has been discussed before. When I first got into parapsychology as an undergraduate student, I was browsing in the library and I came across a um, English translation of uh, one of Richet's books. The English title, I think, was 30 Years in Psychical Research. Uh, it had a big impact on me. I think it was uh, one of my inspirations for getting into the field. Yeah, well, that that book is a translation from French. I think it appeared in 1923 in English, and uh, it's really a great book. And in fact, I will re I will recommend anyone that wants to know more about Richard's views, at least up to 1923. That's the book to to read. It not only has all his opinions about phenomena, but also it's a very good overview of previous psychical research up to the time of publication. And that book was extremely influential at the time. And a lot of people that don't have a historical perspective don't realize that book, especially in France. The French edition that actually was, it had more than one edition. It was reviewed all around in medical journals, in the press. In fact, I, 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 know of, I don't know of any other book in, in, the, in French that received so much attention as that one. And part of it was because Richet was so well known as a scientist. By the time he, he had published that book, he already had won his Nobel Prize. He had so many publications in physiology medical journals, but also in psychical research uh, journals. And when that book appears, it really commanded attention. You know, pe people really said, oh, no, if, if Richet is talking about this topic, we, we need to see what he's saying. And it's, it's fascinating to see the reaction. That's, that's part of the things that I re review in, in my book. I have a chapter where I get a little into that. that it, it was a big thing in, at the time. In fact, one reviewer called it the event of the day. That was the publication of that book. For, for me, that I'm interested in history, the book is, is an excellent window into the past of psychical research. You know, we are now, in 2019, uh, have a lot of different sets of assumptions and experiences that Richer had. And if we want to understand the past, the only thing that we can do is use these old documents to see how people in those time periods were thinking about the phenomena. What were they doing? Why were, was this quest so important to them? And I think this book that you mentioned is an excellent example of, of, of the quest of one very famous scientist to try to do something scientifically meaningful with this phenomenon at that time. To my knowledge, uh, there are several Nobel laureate scientists who are 
interested and supportive of psychical research and parapsychology, but I think he may be the only Nobel laureate who was actually an active researcher in the field. Yeah, that may, that may be the case. I cannot think of, of, of anyone else, really. I know there have been others that were interested, but, but certainly no one was as involved, none of the other Nobel Prize winners were as involved as, as he was. In fact, sometimes you got the impression that that was the most important topic for him and that a lot of the other stuff was kind of incidental, which... I mean, some people will question that, but the the passion that he put in his writings, and the the time that he put for being so such a busy man, you know, teaching full time and at the University of Paris, and uh, doing research at the same time, he had a laboratory with a lot of, of collaborators. Uh, he had students was very open to women scientists at the time, something that was not very common. So, you know, he, he, he was using his time in many, many different ways. That's another thing I would like to mention is that, you know, he, he also was interested in aviation. You know, he doing experiments with, with airplanes. And uh, he wrote about history. He wrote poetry. He wrote plays. He wrote all kinds of other topics like world peace, about the application of, of, of biological evolution to, to life. He, he really had a lot of different interests. Psychology was another topic, sociology. So that also made him very well known, and that's why he commanded so much attention. So you put all that together, you know, his high position in science and in society, plus all his intellectual and artistic production in, write, in writing uh, poetry and novels. And, uh, and he really was a figure that I think represented very well at least the French scientists uh, at his best at, at that time, as a Renaissance man, as some people describe him. You know. And you actually translated some of uh, his writings from French uh, that appear in your book. Yes, yes. I have, a, a, in at least two of the chapters, I have long sections of the chapters that are translations of, of some of what he wrote. One of them is a, an autobiographical essay that, where he discusses his interest in psychical research, how he started from being a, a very young man when he started getting into hypnosis. And, and, you know, he had patients when he was being trained as a physician that, that he did experiments with. His own father, uh, Richard Sr., uh, basically cautioned him and basically told him, son, be careful, you are going to discredit yourself. And his reply was, well, father, I, I'm looking for the truth. He said, isn't that what we should do? Isn't that what is the whole goal of life? And he said that his, his father was silent and basically nodded and said, that's true, you are right. Follow your own way. And from then on, you know, he had a career where he combined medicine, physiology with interest in hypnosis and a lot of these other phenomena. So, you know, I translate this essay giving a lot of information about who are the people that he mentions and how 
what what is that he was doing? The whole point is being giving out information for people today to understand better the figure of Richet. And Richet is very complex and it has so many angles that he had been can be studied uh, from. But it's not a simple figure by, by any means. There is, and there is a small group of people now being interested in exploring not only his psychic uh, explorations, but also his biology, physiology, and, and other areas. Yeah. I understand, for example, that uh, the play he wrote was performed, and uh, the leading actress was the famous Sarah Bernhardt, who, who was a personal friend of his. Yeah, that's true, yeah. He, that's another thing, you know, he was so well connected, not only in scientific circles, but also in artistic ones. And Sarah Bernard was, <coughs> excuse me, a friend of of his. And uh, she was in, in, interested also in psychic phenomena and in some of his explorations later on, she appears here and there as as, as being what we will call today the the target of some ESP experiments, you know, like they were doing readings and the information given was about her. And uh, so, but she's only one out of a lot of people in, in the sciences and the arts uh, that he was involved with. That's, that's certainly a fascinating uh, history by itself, you know, even separate from the psychic stuff. Well, Carlos, thank you so much for uh, sharing your uh, wealth of knowledge about this important person. Uh, it's really exciting for me to have this conversation. I want to encourage our viewers to check out your book, Charles Roche, and uh, I look forward to future conversations with you about some of the other great pioneers in psychical research. Thank you. It has been my pleasure being here. Likewise.